Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Nabila Islam. Nabila, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Can't wait for next Tuesday to finally come by. I know we have one week to go. Can you believe it? I I can't actually. I've been waiting for this week for four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't slept well lately. Um, so on today's podcast, we are going to talk about, I think, an issue that we haven't given enough attention to on this podcast and one that I think is maybe the most important long-term policy issue that has really high stakes in this election, and, and that is the issue of climate change. Joe Biden has a surprisingly progressive climate agenda, um, but you may not have heard much about it. And so we're going to talk about the agenda and talk about the way it's being framed on the campaign trail and what voters can learn about about Biden's campaign on this issue. We are also going to talk about an issue that popped on my radar today because of some tweets you sent, Nabila, that brought to mind to me, we've observed in this election, in particular, this army of small do- small dollar donors across the country who have provided massive uh, infusions of cash into competitive Senate campaigns. Um, but I am already fretting about if we have a successful election for Democrats in this cycle, what the backlash to that will be in 2022, particularly in those midterms. And your tweets raised for me this this question of whether Democrats are doing enough to support on-the-ground organizations that will maintain and help build capacity and political power beyond just the election that's happening in a week. Um, so we're going to talk about what you're seeing in Gwinnett and lessons that small dollar donors may be able to take out of this election moving forward. And then for our final topic today, you're going to hear an interview that I did with Jonathan Wallace. He is a Democratic candidate for the State House in House District 119. Jonathan's making a second run at this seat. He previously held this seat in a special election victory that he had in 2017. He then lost it in the 2018 midterms, and he is trying to come back to that seat here in 2020. He's one of the few candidates I'm aware of that's sort of had the seat lost in and is coming back uh, to try to get it again. So we're going to talk about his campaign. Nabila, I'd like to start with what you've seen on the ground in Gwinnett, particularly the efforts of the Gwinnett County Democratic Party in organizing locally there and and lessons that small dollar donors could take as as uh, you know we look forward and address these questions of, of building capacity and building power over the long term. Um, can you start by just telling listeners a little bit about the on the ground organizing that has been happening at the county level in Gwinnett and how important that organizing has been to the the outcome of these elections that are going to happen next week? Well, you know, Gwinnett is the second most populated county in the entire state of Georgia. It's the fourth most diverse county in the uh, in the entire country. And it flipped blue in 2016. It got bluer in 2018, where Stacey Abrams got about 57% of the Democratic turnout. And analysts say that if we're able to uh, turn out Democratic voters above 60% and lose a little less in rural areas, uh, Georgia will be the key in flipping, I mean, not Georgia, sorry, Gwinnett will be the key in flipping Georgia blue. The county party took it upon itself to put together a robust GOTV plan. Um, we, and I've been helping them since July, put this program together where, uh, we are focusing on helping down ballot candidates. 
Uh, we've raised over $150,000 um, from people from all over the community. And we've invested it in GOTV mailers, uh, centering uh, you know, House and, and Senate candidates. And uh, we, we, for the first time in Gwinnett history, we're running uh, digital ads in Vietnamese, Korean, Spanish, and English, which are the top four languages in the county. I mean, you have to meet voters where they are and encourage them to vote. Um, we've also put together a robust election protection uh, program. As many people uh, might remember, uh, even Pat, you know, in my primary on June 9th, there was a lot of voter suppression going on with long lines and 20% of machines were inoperable uh, the morning of the primary election. And, and those machines were concentrated in 80% of Democratic precincts. And so we've gone about uh, you know, uh, recruiting the most poll watchers of any county party in the entire state out of 159 counties. Uh, we've uh, recruited hundreds of poll workers. Uh, and, you know, right now with you know, the, the long lines after Monday, the first day of early voting have gone down, but we're expecting it to get worse this week, especially Friday, which has historically been the most uh, voting during uh, early voting, the uh, early voting period. And so if we weren't doing this, it wouldn't be happening. Um, I think it's so important that we invest in these county parties locally because it's the people on the ground, the you know, people within the communities that understand best how to communicate with their neighbors. So I think it's very important that uh, county parties all across the country and in Georgia, you know, reflect some uh, like a model such as this to empower uh, people to go out and vote um, locally. Yeah, Nabila, the the efforts that you described there, you know, make me think about the race for the state house in in this election. Luke and I talked on Sunday about the race for the state house and the in the the stakes of this election for Democrats. If they're able to take the state house, Democrats would be able to have a say in the state budget um, and in the major legislative issues they get debated in over the next legislative session. They would also have a seat at the table for redistricting and would most likely be able to force fairer maps, um, which has an impact not just for next year or the next election, but has an impact for an entire decade. And I think so much of this campaign this year has been, I think rightfully so, centered around President Trump, his response to the coronavirus and how Joe Biden would take a different path. But there are serious policy stakes at the state and local levels, at the state legislature, in district attorneys' races that I think have fallen below the radar. And to me, it strikes me as county parties and, and local organizations and, and community organizations are in a much better position to talk to voters about those issues and the policy stakes for those issues in their own communities. And that raises for me this question of whether or not those kinds of organizations are getting adequate investment. Um, I can't remember if I said this in the intro or, or before we started talking, but it is mind blowing to me that Jamie Harrison, Senate candidate in South Carolina, raised over $50 million in a quarter. And as I understand it, that fundraising hall was largely powered by small dollar donors, progressive donors across the country who have a unique and I think deserved distaste of Lindsey Graham, the incumbent Republican senator there in South Carolina. And they plowed a bunch of money into Jamie Harrison's campaign in an effort to help Jamie Harrison defeat him. 
it's an uphill battle for Jamie Harrison. And to me, that $50 million may have been better spent distributed across the country in competitive state legislative races and in local organizations that could speak to these issues and and get out voters at a level sort of beyond the presidential race. Do you think that Gwinnett County in particular and in general, these these county organizations and community organizations are under invested in? And if they are, what should Democratic and, and progressive donors across the country do about it? You know, it, it makes me sick thinking how much money we raise in uh, for political campaigns and where that money could, you know, really go to help solve, you know, hunger in this country and help ho- house homeless people. Um, but you know, g- coming back to Gwinnett County, and uh, you know, you mentioned if I think that places like this county are underinvested, I would say absolutely. You know, Jamie Harrison has a boogeyman, which is Lindsey Graham, and you know, people are. When you have a an, a a villain, it's easier to raise that money, and so they want to get him out as much as they want to, to put uh, make Jamie Harrison the next U.S. senator in South Carolina. But we organizations locally struggle to raise money, and that's not you know news to anyone. With that being said, uh, there are people, there are donors, there are uh, organizations at the top that could direct money to local organizations, uh, community organizations, uh, county parties in a way that could make a, a real difference. If, and as I met, mentioned before, um, it's the people on the ground that know their communities best. And I truly believe that a winning strategy is when you take the bottom, bottom up approach. Uh, and if we were able to have the resources and the right leadership in every county party I don't see why uh, we wouldn't be successful in dominating our message on the ground. I think what happens so often is that, you know, organizations like the Gwinnett Democratic County Party or others as well are just overlooked. Um, they aren't, the potential in them hasn't been realized. Uh, and, and at the same time, these, you know, races, these national races are, they, they're, they're shinier, right? And so it takes a, a lot of strategy and a watchful eye to recognize that if we organized and invested locally, uh, we could win more races. And these local races are important because, as we know, uh, redistricting is going to happen. And so um, that's going to be very important for Democrats. uh, And we need to win back the House in order to have a say in how the maps are going to be cut out. And and if we don't win back the House, you know, the Republicans could lock us in gerrymandered districts for the next 10 years. Voters need to realize, and we stress this at the county party, that don't stop at the top. Make sure you keep voting down the ballot. And honestly, I think right now with these national campaigns, uh, their focus is on, you know, winning back uh, the presidency, uh, flipping the Senate. I get it. I understand. But we also, there's so many issues that affect us locally um, at a at a at a very personal level that are being overlooked and they should be invested in. I too am already really anxious about the 2022 midterms. It's possible I'm getting ahead of myself, but as a close observer of the Obama era, you know Obama came in in a pretty much a landslide election amidst the the financial crisis and and the souring of Americans' opinions of the Iraq War and. You know, 
we're looking at the possibility that the Democrats maybe, if they're lucky, have 51, 52 seats in the U.S. Senate. They had 60 seats in the U.S. Senate after Obama's election, and um, they had you know, historic majorities in, in states across the country. And within you know, really two or three cycles between 2010 and 2014, so much ground was lost in state and local offices, and that had real policy consequences. You know, the the signature domestic legislative achievement for President Obama was probably the Affordable Care Act, and the loss of state legislatures across the country handicapped Obama's biggest legis- legislative achievement. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm thinking too, thinking ahead about it is possible that there is a landslide victory for Biden and, and Democrats next week, but how long that that window is to make good policy is it any longer than than the first two years leading up to the midterm? And then what is the backlash and and will good policies if they're made by a President Biden and, and Democrats in Washington and and Democrats in states across the country, will those policies stand the test of time? Um, because if there is an immediate Republican backlash to to a Biden administration and in their agenda, you know, a lot of those things could be undermined very quickly. And I, and I think that actually brings us to our second topic, which it is massively important for the future of our planet that if Joe Biden is elected and puts in place a progressive agenda on climate change, that that agenda not be undone within two or four years of it being passed into law. And so I think, you know, for our listeners, it actually could be news that, that, uh, Joe Biden has a really progressive climate agenda. Nabila, can you give us you know some of the highlights of of his agenda and how it stacks up against the standards set forth by progressive activists who have spent much of the last two years arguing for a Green New Deal? So Biden does actually have the most progressive climate plan that any president has ever had. Um, he doesn't talk about it as much, uh, and I wish that he would. But his, the goals of the Biden climate plan include a net zero emissions economy by 2050, a net zero energy emissions by uh, 2050, 100% clean, clean and renewable energy, 100% fossil free, fossil free transportation by 2050. Uh, he wants to create 10 million jobs over 10 years, good paying jobs, uh, good paying union jobs. He has a very progressive climate agenda. And he doesn't talk about it as much as as much as he should. Um, and I think that he's missing an opportunity to really engage uh, young voters who really wanted to see more of a progressive agenda uh, coming out of the Biden campaign. Um, as you know, uh, you know, firebrand progressives like uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, uh, w- w- she was on the committee to help formulate this climate plan. And I think that while progressives might be dismayed, we should be encouraged that uh, you know Biden actually took on some of the uh, more progressive stances coming from the Green New Deal. Unfortunately, when it comes to messaging, I feel like listeners will remember when the Republicans you know cornered Kamala and Joe Biden into saying that they weren't going to ban fracking, and unfortunately, that's like the only thing that a lot of these younger progressives uh, really know about Biden's climate plan, and so. Um, he, he needs to talk about it more because right now the Republicans are defining him. Um, and that is problematic because, you know, voters aren't realizing that we really do have an opportunity 
to be the most progressive when it comes to combating the climate crisis. The interesting thing is he did at the end of the the final presidential debate, he did make a statement about transitioning away from the oil industry that made a lot of headlines. I'm I'm interested in what you say, Nabila, that that this statement, you know, maybe hasn't really penetrated the news cycle. But let's hear what Biden had to say at the end of, of the, the last presidential debate. I have one final would question. Would he close it down falls. the oil industry? It falls. Or would you close it down falls. the oil industry? I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I will that's transition. a big statement. That's it is a big statement. That's a because big statement. I would stop. Why would you do that? Because the oil industry pollutes significantly. Oh, I see. And here's the deal. But that's you can't a big do statement. That. Well, if you let me finish the statement, because it has to be replaced by renewable energy over time, over time. And I'd stop giving to the oil industry, I'd stop giving them federal subsidies. He won't give federal subsidies to the to the gas, excuse me, to the to uh, solar and wind. Yeah. Why are we giving it to oil industry? We actually do All give right. it to solar and wind. We and have that's one maybe final the biggest question. statement in terms of business. That's the biggest statement. Okay. Because basically what he's saying question, is he is Mr. going President. to destroy the oil industry. Okay. Will you remember that, Texas? Will you okay. remember that, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma? Vice President Biden, let me give you 10 seconds to respond, Ohio. and then I have to get to the final question. Vice President Biden. He takes everything out of context, but the point is, look, we have to move toward a net zero emissions. The first place to do that by the year 2035 is in energy okay. production, by 2050 totally. All right. Nabila, that statement was, was framed as this sort of big rhetorical leap for Biden, but it really is, I think, the basic formulation of, of his climate plan. I, I'm interested in what your sense of it is that that people seem to have heard more about the issue of fracking than about this statement. But also, you know, that was, in some sense, that's that's kind of a bold statement, but it is not the full-throated em- embrace of a, a Green New Deal-style proposal that maybe would be more appealing to young voters. So I'm interested in more of your thoughts about his approach to messaging this and given the political situation he's in. Democrats need to stop being so afraid. I, you can see that every time we feel like, like you could see Trump felt like he got a gotcha moment. I, this is what he said isn't a, a huge leap for him. Like you mentioned, this is part of his climate plan. Um, people that believe in science and the cl- in that climate change is real, recognize that we have to do something bold in, in order to combat it. Uh, you know, we are seeing these, the, the West Coast is, uh, you know, um, with, the, with their forest fires, the Gulf is having, hurricane after hurricane hit it it's flooding uh, we have record record droughts and the United States has to lead in taking uh, you know it has to lead in combating the climate crisis so that other countries will also fall in line because they look at the United States and if they if we're not doing anything why should they I, I wish that the Biden campaign would lean more into it and just own it and like you can't hide from it it's on your it's on your website <laughs> so I feel like if Biden was more confident about his climate plan and wasn't shy about it and really leaned into it, he would encourage a lot of undecided voters, even some, maybe even some Republicans who care about uh, the environment, to actually pay attention and you know, you know, and vote for him because of his climate plan. Um, a lot of Republicans believe that the climate that climate change is real and that we need to do something about it. The Trump campaign uh, talking about how we need to make save the oil industry. I mean, that's just like. That is not a thinking that I would feel like I, I don't think the average American 
uh, thinks about that we we need to keep these federal subsidies for the oil industry. It's a very elitist comment uh, and favors corporations over working people. And I, I I I just feel like we lose it. We lose the messaging game when it comes to solving the climate crisis, and, and the Republicans make it about you know, losing jobs, they, they turn it into uh, something that's scary, that you should be fearful of, when in fact that um, it will, you know, it will reduce pollution, it will enable us to have uh, clean water, clean air, it will create jobs moving away from a fossil fuel industry towards a renewable energy economy. Uh, would, and with a just transition, we can have, especially during this pandemic, where we've seen tens of millions of people lose their jobs that they probably won't get back, uh, create new jobs that are actually helpful uh, to our communities, to the environment, and so uh, I, we should I, we shouldn't shy away from it, and we should be stronger when it comes to talking about uh, dem- the democratic plan to beat the climate crisis. I've actually been somewhat pleasantly surprised by sort of the state of things on climate policy, given that Joe Biden is the nominee, and and the sense that I get from from some national progressives that they. You know, while they may have criticisms of his approach to messaging or of some of the specifics in his plan or or his uh, him declining to take a bolder position in, in banning fracking, they seem to have sort of settled on those are disagreements that can be settled in the legislative process after Biden gets elected. And, and for now, there seems to be a little bit more of a united progressive front on this is a bold agenda, even if it's not the same one that a uh, an, a nominee, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, would propose if if she was in the race, or or this the same plan that that Bernie Sanders proposed. And I, so I, so I, I've been I think pleasantly surprised a little bit at the, you know, let Biden have a little bit of room to maneuver to ensure that he wins the states that he needs to win. I do wonder, though, I've always kind of thought that it is important in elections like these to lay the groundwork for the work you will do when you are governing by making a a clear and explicit argument about what you will do when you are in power. And, you know, there's so much content that a presidential campaign produces that you could actually you could pull up videos where they they make ads about climate change. You could um pull up these statements that he that he made in the debate and you could you could write a story that says he's doing a lot of bold messaging and then you could also look at the way he approaches the issue of fracking and say well you know maybe he's not as as enthusiastic about this plan as as he needs to be um so I don't know I'm I'm a little bit split on it I'm I feel pleasantly surprised that this has not become an issue that has driven a wedge between Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee, and and progressive activists, because they were much further apart on these issues during the primary. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of the argument used against Joe Biden's nomination in the primary was he will disappoint you by not adopting bold plans and, and following through on those. And at least to this point, he has, you know, because of the unity task force that AOC and others were on, this plan got much more progressive than the original one that was put out. Um, and so I don't know, I'm, you know, 
we will know for sure whether or not ultimately this will be a disappointment when this stuff has to be legislated and when the Biden administration has to determine, is this a priority or are are other things a priority? You know, we'll know then for sure. But I, I don't know. I find myself pleasantly surprised at at where we are compared to where I thought we might've been, you know, in February. Right. Well, he certainly moved left on climate more, more than he was before. That is for sure. And I think they realized that they absolutely need young voters if to energize young voters and progressives um, in order to win uh, on November 3rd. And, uh, you, you know, going back to the messaging piece of this, you know, call it a jobs plan. You know, it, it's just, we, and it is a jobs plan plan and it's going to create tens of millions of jobs and uh, but i feel like every time the republicans hit biden on his climate plan instead of doubling down on it they kind of like run away from it like no we're not going to ban fracking and that's like the only thing that you remember from biden's climate plan and i it's unfortunate that those are the moments that uh, voters remember especially young ones like progressive ones I am glad to see his climate plan, um, you know, taking on some of the, you know, Green New Deal's goals. And, you know, of course, he could go further on it. And I feel like progressives will have that opportunity come during his presidency uh, in uh, moving, you know, the president of, of a little bit more to the left of uh, passing uh, much more bolder uh, climate uh, policy to combat the climate pr- crisis. And I also did want to comment on when you mentioned how President Obama, when he passed the Affordable Care Act, while it was a monumental piece of legislation and it gave health care to tens of thousands, millions of people that didn't have it before, it gave Republicans a talking point and that hurt Democrats down ballot. And we lost close to a thousand legislative seats across the country. Um, that's also because I don't feel like the Obama presidency really focused on uh, down ballot races It was much more on the big picture. And so with Biden's presidency, I think that they are more cognizant of, you know, wanting, you know, not having any of their plans, you know, hurt uh, candidates all across this country. We very much could see the pendulum swing and, uh, you know, see a red wave in 2022. Uh, And I think it's important that uh, a Biden presidency carefully calculates um, how to go about uh, passing bold legislation and, and, and messaging it uh, in a way that empowers voters and uh, elected officials all across the country down ballot so that we can keep our gains that we've won in 2018 and in 2020. Uh, and, I, and I don't, you know, the history, history says that once you have a presidency and you lose, you'll lose, you know, the House and, you know, it'll go back. I don't think you, it necessarily has to. I think if we learn from our past mistakes, we should be able to hold on uh, to our seats uh, coming uh, in, in a Biden presidency. I will also comment that 538 uh, came out with a percentage. Uh, they said 71% of a chance of having a Dem trifecta. So winning back the presidency, flipping the U.S. Senate. We already have the House. So we will have a, a, a window to, to enact, uh, to pass bold legislation. And I think we should take it and we should take it and we should also message it in a way that um, empowers um, all of our voters and elected officials down ballot across the country. This I I think is really relevant and I, I think it was why I was talking to myself a little bit in, in circles in my last 
response was, it is so important that a Biden administration take bold action and then have a plan for keeping that bold action in place and defending it against an inevitable backlash. And I think the ACA is super relevant there and the, and the lessons for for all of the legislative seats that were lost across the country is super relevant there because at the beginning of this, you know, Republicans had for a significant chunk of the electorate had successfully soured the brand of the Green New Deal. And, you know, I don't I don't know that I have the answer for how you 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 pass such a big expansive plan. It will inevitably lead to stories about people losing jobs in the oil and gas industry and what their what what the outcome of that is going to be. Do they have job training that transitions them to something new or or do they end up unemployed? And how do you defend against that politically so that you don't lose Congress almost immediately so that a Biden presidency is not just one term, whether or not it's Biden running for a second term or, or Kamala Harris running to succeed him? That I think is so important and is something that that needs to be thought about. And why I'm sort of of split minds is that when you've messaged in five different directions, you know, it's a big, bold plan to the progressives. It's not going to be super disruptive to to people in the middle. It's, you know, it's it's not banning fracking for people in Pennsylvania. This election, while I think it will usher in an opportunity to pass bold policy, I'm not sure that it's created a high level, broad conversation that we as a country are now going to take on this big, expansive project to combat climate change. And that, I think, was the power of the kind of the the Green New Deal type messaging framework and calling back to FDR's New Deal. But I don't think that's where we're going to land when this election is over. And so I do have anxiety about how you defend these gains in the long run. I mean, let's let's talk about how we've lost coal jobs, even more coal jobs during uh, the, the Trump presidency and how we failed to actually it, Trump failed to bring back those coal jobs that he promised. And let's talk about how I saw a tweet that said uh, from a journalist that said Texas now employs more people in renewable energy, 254,000 than in oil and gas, 162,000. So, you know, we're already well on our way to transition away from fossil fuels. Like it's happening right now across the country. People recognize that the, the future is clean, renewable energy, that it's more cost effective, that it's cleaner, that it reduces pollution. Um, and I, I, and I feel that if when we win back the presidency, we should dominate the messaging on how this is helping people and in, in putting them back to work and making our, uh, our environment safer and making the, you know, the, you know, the communities, the frontline communities that are most affected by the climate crisis, um, helping them in, in, in ways in, in terms of um, them ha having clean water. Let's talk, you know, Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water. Um, again, uh, I feel like Democrats often uh, are, get trapped by Republicans and they make it seem like we're taking away jobs when we're not. And we should just double down on how we, we Democrats are the job creators. We are the job creators and we're bringing good paying jobs that are healthier for our community. Yeah, I think that's the one benefit that that defending this policy may have over over defending uh, a health care policy that in and of itself did not create jobs in, in the Obama era. Um, well, that I think 
for Democrats, the the potential of defending those policy gains will be a good problem to have if uh, Democrats are ultimately successful in elections next week. So let's go ahead and close out this show by talking to one Democrat who is running for the state legislature here in Georgia. Here's my interview with Jonathan Wallace, a Democratic candidate in House District 119. All right. Joining the podcast is Jonathan Wallace, a Democratic candidate for State House District 119 in athens Clark in Oconee Counties. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you uh, inviting me in. Jonathan, I think longtime listeners might remember you. This is this is not your first run for this seat, but for some of our newer listeners, can you tell them a little bit about your background and what led you to run uh, for State House District 119? Sure. Happy to. Yeah. My story starts in uh, 2017, where I decided to get involved with uh, politics and see how I could make a difference and an impact. Uh, and the way that opportunity showed up was running for the state house seat in 2017 in a special election. Uh, and I'd never been involved in politics before, was you know a software developer, married with three kids and uh, just uh, enjoying our lives. And Winning that seat sort of put me on a different path than I ever expected. Um, ran again in 2018 and fell a little bit short, but you know the way things shook out here in 2019 uh, made the determination that I wanted to give it a shot again in 2020. Uh, and uh, and here we are running again here for the third time for the seat. Uh, and I, you know, the the thing that was interesting in 2017 when I ran was that there was a thought in my mind that, you know, if I started in 2017, I would learn what I needed to know to be help somebody be successful in 2020. That was sort of the thing. Like if I figure it out now when, when redistricting is on the line, uh, that'll be the chance uh, to make a real big impact. And so that was a, like a small seed of an idea a long time ago. And it's sort of interesting to see that plan come together now. For obvious reasons, the pandemic has dominated our politics this year. Nearly 8,000 Georgians have died from the virus, and the state has over 350,000 cases. We've struggled to keep schools open, struggled to keep businesses afloat, and we've been living in this situation going on you know, for eight months now. Can you describe your view of the state's response to the pandemic? Uh, I've been incredibly disappointed. There was a recent article that came out in Atlanta Magazine that talked about the the uh, the organization, the business that was the company that was responsible for uh, this building the dashboard that we use for information to make determinations and that people use to make decisions about uh, their personal safety, their business safety, and sort of how they interpreted the pandemic. So at the state level, I, I think we've had a real uh, poor response. Uh, there's been a, a it's been very confusing as to what recommendations people should follow. Uh, there's been a, a large amount of partisanship that seeped into the response, which I think has really hindered us and moving in the same direction. It's really divided us and moving in the same direction at the same time. And uh, that's led to, you know, a, a just a base level of insecurity, a base level of, of concern about safety that impacts, uh, at, impacts people's lives. It impacts, you know, the ability for schools to reopen. It impacts the ability for businesses to to stay afloat, to stay open. Uh, and so, I think our, our state is ultimately highly responsible. The, the the governor's administration is highly responsible for their unwillingness. I think I call it to have the courage to respond in an appropriate way to to say, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it, and we're going to be consistent about it. There's been this abdication of leadership where they say, it's not our responsibility, it's a local level decision. Uh, and we see this sort of kicking, you know, punting the football uh, as opposed to, you know, making a go of it and actually trying to make a play and trying to do something that can get us back on our feet quicker. 
And so, you know, I look at the, the, where we're at right now, and there's some positives to the fact that we have um, some economic recovery. We saw tax revenues will be a little bit higher than expected, which is great, but there's a cost. As you mentioned, 8,000 folks have passed away uh, and we're seeing that we've plateaued at our, at our infection rates and our death rates. And it seems like things are back on the upswing right now, uh, which is really concerning moving into the winter months. At the beginning of this crisis, the legislature granted expansive emergency authority to Governor Kemp. And since then, it's been Governor Kemp's actions that have largely governed the state's response. So if you were a member of the legislature and your party had controlled the legislature at the time, how would you have liked to see the legislature's response be different? I would like to have us done more to uh, to empower our local communities to make the decisions that they need to. I think the governor making the case that that uh, Athens Clark County was not able to pass the ordinances that they see fit uh, in the community because of the spread in their community. I, I really think that's that's that goes against the idea of local control, which is something I've I supported as a candidate. And I had heard that a lot of Republicans supported, but when the rubber met the road, uh, we saw the, the governor willing to take folks to court to restrict their ability to do that. So from a legislative perspective, uh, we needed to support our businesses and our and our people. So if we can find ways, you know, at the legislative level, at the state level, to provide more support to to uh, local folks that they could so they could stay home so that we could get the contact uh tracing and the testing in place. I think that's what we really needed to do. We needed to have that infrastructure in place that gives us the good information so that we can make the right decisions. We've seen, you know, I don't know how many folks pay attention, but New Zealand has uh, eliminated the virus. They're living under no constraints whatsoever when it comes to how they live their lives whatsoever. You know, kids back in school, businesses are open, people going to coffee shops, people can go to concerts if they want because they got on top of it early and they did the things that they needed to do early. So as a legislature, throwing some uh, fully funding our, our our Department of Public Health, especially with respect to, uh, you know, this portion of uh, uh, contagious diseases and infectious diseases, we that those funds were cut, I think, back in the last recession in 2008, and they were never restored. So not only did we have um, leadership, which was inconsistent at the state level, we also had a department who was running on fumes and has never been fully supported. So I think that was a mistake at the at the at the uh, at the legislature where we should have been throwing more support behind folks, uh, not not keeping them at the same rate which was already deficient, uh, you know, going on 10 years. Moving on from the pandemic, if you're successful in this election, there's a decent chance that you would join a new Democratic majority in the state house. What are one or two things that should be at the top of a governing agenda for a Democratic majority in Atlanta? Yeah, I think for me, the, the, the number one is, is that's going to be most impactful. I think about what's the things that we can do that's going to impact Georgians immediately. And I think uh, it goes back to Medicaid expansion. Uh, the governor recently uh, got approval for uh, Medicaid uh, uh, waivers, and those waivers are expensive. They cost more than Medicaid expansion would. They cover less people. And when we're talking about an economic recovery, how do we uh, how can we ha- how can we stimulate the growth of businesses? How can we stimulate the growth and the impact on the local communities? And we have a rural healthcare crisis. If we expand Medicaid, that's uh, eight million dollars a day that's coming into Georgia. Uh, that that wouldn't that's currently not and hasn't been since 2014, which works out to be billions of dollars that we've uh, just let 
you know, flow down the stream and, and not taken advantage of, but it's like 50,000 jobs. It's 500,000 Georgians or so that would have access to healthcare and about 50,000 new jobs. That's a significant uh, jump and, and, and the employment, uh, uh, you know, the, the employment numbers here in the state, um, you know, the second thing would be, you know, education. I feel strongly that we need to invest in education, uh, which is, is, is uh, something that I had promised to do in 2017, followed through on. Uh, so fully funding our education uh, would be important because I think without that, we're going to see, uh, we're going to see furloughs. We're going to see, uh, you know, reductions in forces in our, in our education system. And in some of the rural communities, that's the largest employer in the area. So it'll be, it'll be even more devastating. And then, you know, the third thing I think about, and when we're talking about it is uh, reapportionment and redistricting. How do we handle making sure that people's voices are heard, that they're not being silenced in a partisan fashion? Uh, I think we've seen across the country that different states have engaged in partisan gerrymandering. And I would like to see us have a process that's transparent, uh, that's fair, and doesn't engage in partisan gerrymandering that silences people's voices irrespective of the side of the aisle, I think it's critical that people are and pulled into the, 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 uh, the political process, the, the process of uh, electing their voters. And, and I think that's just incredibly important going forward to restore uh, faith and trust in, in our government. And I think, the, I think those are the three things I would look at. And that would be the order that I would order them in as well. What's going to people are going to be, we're going to be in serious trouble here um, in the next uh, five or six months. I think we'll see the economic impacts of the, without, you know, with the, um, the difficulties at the federal level of, of there being support, we're going to see the difficulties. Those things are going to be raining down and we're going to see some, some uh, really difficult uh, problems facing local communities with respect to the economic and health impacts in the, over the next year. So another issue that deals with the way people's voices are heard in this state is the administration of our elections. And the first week of early voting in Georgia was reminiscent of the June 9th primary, which was reminiscent of the 2018 election, long lines and technical problems that forced voters to wait, sometimes for hours, to cast their ballots. Is the combined administration of Georgia's elections at the state and county level adequate? And if not, what should George, what should the legislature do to protect people's right to vote? That's a great question. It's been very frustrating. I was not a fan of the current system. I thought it was overpriced for what we needed. I thought we needed to go to hand-marked paper ballots, which would be uh, uh, much more secure uh, from a from a systemic perspective. The the, the chances of somebody of there being technical problems that are widespread. And we saw, it's funny because that's exactly what we saw just a few days before uh, early vo voting began. We saw a rush rollout of a software update to address uh, some technical issues, uh, some issues with voting that were found with the, with uh, with that special Senate election where there's 22 candidates. So this is this is the concern that I think that we face is that uh, when there's a problem at the software level, it affects everybody and it can be mag, uh, you know, the impact is 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 huge. Whereas if if we were using handmarked paper ballots, we would have been able to. You know, each county could have gone and, and they could have reprinted the balance, balance as necessary. Uh, and and if, if we catch if you catch it early, you're not having to reprint them all because not of all of them had been reprinted, uh, had been printed in the first place. So what can we do at the state level? Uh, we've got to make sure that that folks are able to register to vote. That's something I think we've done well. But I think I think um, when it when it comes to our election, uh, you know, there was a ruling that just came out of the 11th Circuit that said, that we don't have to have updated poll poll books uh, at the the voter location. So when we run into technical problems, at if if a if a county runs into technical technical problems at the precinct level, 
uh, that, that they're not going to have updated information. That should be something that to me is, is a no-brainer. Why is a court, number one, saying that they don't have to have updated information so that people can you know, be verified and ready to vote? Uh, that makes it more difficult. And if somebody's using this to make it really clear, if you have an outdated poll book, you're going to have to cast a provisional ballot. That puts more responsibility on you to come back and make sure and prove that your vote should count. Uh, so I would love to I would love to see us look at that process and whole and make sure that those types of things that are um, they just they, it's it's very confusing to me because they just don't make sense from a we want to encourage folks to vote. Uh, I, I think the other thing is uh, we've you know we do have the ability to do early voting on the Saturday and we had some on Sunday this year uh, in in Athens Clark County at least for early voting. Um, but we're still seeing long lines. Why are we still seeing long lines? It's because the counties are shouldering those burdens uh, with requirements to support these machines that are onerous and difficult. So, you know, if is it is it providing more funding to the counties so that they can afford in more populous areas to rent or, 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 or acquire places like uh, Stegman Coliseum or uh, at the uh, the um, up in Atlanta where they're getting the sports arenas opened up so they can go in there. Like those things, I've heard great things about the lines there, but do the local communities need more support so they can uh, find those locations? If it's a financial support, we should get them that to make it easier. Uh, we just shouldn't have folks having to stand in long lines to, to vote. They should be able to come in and get in and out in 30 minutes and during a lunch break if they wanna do that. I would love to see us make it a state holiday as well, uh, election day so that folks um, uh, have uh, all every opportunity to go do that. So if there are going to be long lines, that they don't have the pressure to get out of the line soon, uh, you know, leave to rush back to work for some reason and not get a chance to have their voice heard. You spoke out recently on behalf of Mocha Johnson, who's a candidate for the other Athens area House seat, and she had uh, racial slurs hurled at her in a recent candidate forum. It does feel like we're experiencing more instances of open hatred and racism in public spaces during the Trump era. How do we begin to heal the damage done by these open displays of hatred and racism in our politics? And is it enough to just go back to like 2013 or 2014, the calmer years before Trump's politics of division became so prominent? No, it's not enough just to go back there. We have to we have to take the opportunity to move forward and learn and grow with with one another. And I think when when I see that type of stuff, number one, what happened to Mo Mocha was just it's it's there's to be silent on the type of hate that she received is to condone it. We have to stand up and speak out against that type of, of vitriol, that type of hate uh, that lives in people's hearts. And I think the number one thing that I think we can't go back to is accepting that silently. We have to be willing to speak up and speak out against it and, and, and speak to those folks who uh, don't wanna speak out and call them out and say, hey, you're not, you know, uh, this is an issue in our community. We can't pretend it's not there. It is an, it is an issue that we must address. So going back to 2013 is sort of trying to put the, you know, the genie back in the bottle and pretend it doesn't exist when to some degree that hate has existed all along, but without a doubt, the politics of Trump has condoned and encouraged it and supported it. I mean, he is uh, his, his uh, Weasley way of uh, pretending to incite hate without inciting hate uh, where people go, what, you know, they sort of look at you he's gaslighting, he's gaslighting, uh, he's gaslighting physical harm. We have uh, the, the statements he's made with respect to governor Whitmer um, and, uh, and uh, up North. And, and there were a couple of plots that were recently exposed to, uh, to kidnap her and uh, that he's not doing his job of being a good leader to push back on that. And we, and what that says to me is that it's each of our individual responsibilities to speak up and speak out against that type of behavior. 
So when it happens to a candidate uh, that's running uh, in a district adjacent to me and on a form, which I'm attending, uh, it makes it very clear that there's a lot of work left to be done to convey to people uh, where, where this is happening. So how do we unify? How do we, how do we heal through that? It comes back to empathy. We have to have leaders that express empathy. So it's not just when we call out hate, it's not just calling out the hate uh, and, and, and saying that it's unacceptable. It's also welcoming the opportunity to, to help those people who are living in that hate to grow and learn. Why do they feel that fear? Because that's where I think hate comes from. It comes from a place of fear and anxiety. How can we make sure those folk, we address that? Uh, and I'm not saying that we, uh, that we uh, you know, uh, bend all of our conversations to trying to help those folks ho- uh, heal and not address the inequities that exist in our society, what I am saying, though, is we have to have that space for them to grow. We have to have, we have, to have expressed grace for them to grow and, and to uh, find a path out of that hate. And that doesn't come with a closed heart. We have to have our hearts open. And that's a difficult thing to do. Uh, but that's where the courage comes into play. That's where, as, as leaders, we have to be willing to have those conversations. As a leader, I have to be willing to say there's a reason that, that this hate exists in our community. Uh, some of it comes from fear and anxiety. Some of it comes from tradition and, and convention. And so let's see how we can grow and learn with one another, whether, maybe, whether that's attending maybe a church that you don't normally attend to celebrate and worship in a different way, whether that's going to community events um, in a different part of your community. Maybe it's a mile in a different direction than you normally drive uh, to meet with different folks and see what their concerns are. It's really about, I think, building those stronger bonds back across neighborhoods, uh, family, you know, family and friends. And when we do that, we ultimately, I think, make better decisions. We have more trust. Uh, and we're also more resilient to the challenges that we'll face, like when something like a pandemic starts. You mentioned in your intro that you've held the seat before, and, and this is your third campaign in, in District 119. What's one thing that you've learned about your community across these multiple runs for office in athens Clark and Oconee counties? I've learned how many people are in there that how many people are incredibly involved and care strongly about making a better community, and that is uplifting. Um, I, I say to folks that one of the number one blessings that I've received is to meet so many amazing people. And and if I could make one pitch to folks as to why you should get involved in your community in a stronger way, whether it's politics or some civic organization, it's because you meet the folks whose hearts are driven by uh, by service, by making a better world. Um, it, it's the, the faith that you see expressed in the people who are willing to do this work and the energy and drive and discipline that they express in doing the work, whether it's feeding, helping feed folks who are in uh, food precarious positions, whether it's in addressing the issues of homelessness, whether it's in advocating for policies at the state level, like uh, fully funding education and expanding Medicaid, uh, those types of folks who are doing that work are uplifting and inspiring. Uh, and so that, I think that's the thing I took away. It was something that was not on my, um, in my, you know, uh, in my field of vision before I started running. I saw it to some degree in my church, but to see it across multiple different faiths, to see it across, you know, even folks who are atheists or agnostics willing to do the same work, all of those actions that they take are expressions of faith and they're invigorating and they, and they help bolster my own faith, uh, whether it comes to religion 
or the faith in democracy, I think, which is at, as being attacked uh, in many ways uh, by our current political circumstances. Uh, it's very uplifting. So that's my, my, that's my pitch to folks. And the thing that I learned and have learned and the thing that's going to sustain me to keep doing this work uh, one way or the other come November 4th. So let's close here by hearing the pitch for you. We're in crunch time here. You and I are talking on Wednesday morning and election day is in six days. For the voters in House District 119, what's the biggest difference between you and your opponent? There, <laughs> I think there's a ton of differences. Uh, the biggest difference is I bring something that's more than a cardboard cutout to, to the seat. I bring a pragmatism, a discipline, and a... Uh, the ability to exercise discretion and make good decisions up there. It's not straightforward when you get to the state house and you're working with 180 other folks in your chamber to get something done. You have to have uh, you have to have a wide area of knowledge. You have to have a wide array of relationships with other folks. Uh, but the other, you know, uh, there's the the policy positions where I'm very different. But it's also my experience in my my personal life. I think that really drives home the difference. I. Uh, worked in software for the last 20 years. And specifically, I've worked in helping build businesses. So I'm not just working for another company. I've built software for companies that have been sold for millions of dollars. I've built software that's being used at, uh, you know, Fortune 50 companies uh, for them to make uh, millions more dollars. And I've seen what it takes to, for businesses to be successful. But that's all been done in an environment where I was also giving my time to a nonprofit to grow uh education for people to learn software development skills, whether adults or children, after school programs for kids, uh, 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 educational opportunities for adults to, to learn software. So I've seen what it takes to help grow businesses and grow people. And when I step into that role at the state house, that's the perspective I bring. And I also have an expertise in that area, which is unique in the state house. I don't think there's anybody with my qualifications and technology that's uh, been in the state house since I've been in there. Uh, and bringing those skills back, I think, is incredibly important as we move forward. And we look to say, how do we recover from the economic malaise that has been brought about because of the pandemic? And uh, that's something that my opponent doesn't have. Uh, he's he's a real estate developer. And that's not generating new jobs. That's benefiting off of the growth that comes to a community versus the actual job creators. And so when we're looking at that, I'm bringing my heart to it uh, from an empathic perspective, a people first perspective, but I also know exactly what it takes to help uh, businesses succeed. So I really feel like I bring the whole package um, uh, and have a, a strong uh um, uh, you know, strong understanding of multiple topics beyond just that, that allow me to, to be the best representative for District 119. Well, Jonathan, if people want to learn more about your campaign in District 119, how can they do that? The easiest place is to go to wallace419.com. That's uh, uh, Wallace, F-O-R, and then the numerals 119.com. Uh, got some platform policy positions. They can also reach out to me directly via cell 706-363-0863. You've got, uh, you can text me or call me at that number. Um, and happy to answer any questions that folks may have to earn their support uh, or work with folks on addressing some issues here in the community across the state going forward. Jonathan Wallace is a Democratic candidate for House District 119 that is in the athens Clark and Oconee County areas. Jonathan, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Appreciate it very much. All right. So thank you to Jonathan Wallace for joining the podcast. And Nabila, thank you for joining the show today. Of course. Glad to be on it. Y'all, if you have not made your plan to vote, uh, please do so. We are in the final days and your your time is running out. Uh, do not let election day pass without letting your voice 
be heard. And uh, you will hear from from Luke and I one more time before the election. And then we're going to get a group together to do an election recap. Um, So we will talk to you again soon. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.